Are you there, aliens? It's me, Pyre Lily. Coming in real quick just to give a bit of a trigger warning. Uh, we will be discussing a bit of bodily harm and sexual undertones in horror literature. So this is your heads up. Stay safe and take care of yourselves. And now on with the episode. And welcome back to Area 51 and a Half, where we talk about all things science fiction, fantasy, horror, and pop culture. I am your host, John Allen, also known as Spooky Uncle John. With me, as always, are my Millennial Falcons. Snyderman501, Nick Snyder. And Ren, a.k.a. Pyro Lily, the Technomage. So it is our favorite time of year, Halloween. We love Halloween here at Area 51 and a Half. And we are talking about all things spooky all month long. And this episode, going to be talking about some of our favorite, some of the most prolific horror authors out there. But before we can do any of that, Nick, you need to remind our aliens how they can get a hold of us. Well, they can find us on social media. That is Instagram, Threads, TikTok, and X. At the Area 51H, you can also find us on Facebook and YouTube by searching for Area 51 and a half. And of course, make sure to check out our Patreon Remember, if you sign up, we'll send you all sorts of goodies. You'll get access to all sorts of exclusives. So we all had a busy weekend this weekend. I know you guys were at Renaissance Festival, Renfest. Yeah. Want to tell me a little bit about that? Oh, we went in as part of the Canon Crew, which uh, is a lot of fun for me. I'm new to the Canon Crew, so it's just... They I'm... let you around something explosive. I'm yeah! Like, that, that's not a good life choice. I know, right? <laughs> uh, but yeah, it was a lot of fun. Uh, this is... This was my second time going to Ren Fair. What about you, Ren? Um, this was my second year at the Oxford Oxford Renaissance Festival, but I've been going to Ren Fairs uh, most of my life. Yeah. But well, yeah, no, it was my second year at this one. How unfair is it that Ren gets their own fair? It's spelled I, different. I don't care. Everyone was saying that it's my fair, so. Whatever. <laughs> they deserve it. Uh, yeah, they is... put up with us. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, it was a lot of fun. A lot of, oh my God, the food. Uh, a lot of great vendors. There's a, there's a guy uh, who does the, the fairs in our area. Um, he's a weapons, he, like, he's, he does weapons, right? He's got a lot of really cool, uh, he's got Aragorn's sword. He's got the Witcher's sword. He's got Sting. He's got... Lionel's sword from uh from Thundercats, Thundercats yeah, oh, my and it, and like it's not it's not like he has some LARPing stuff like foam stuff, but lo- most of it is legit made of metal. He has it's expensive, but homie's got Mjolnir. Wow, yeah, he's got both. Wow. He's got a foam Mjolnir, which was I think like fifty five bucks, which is not bad. Yeah. but he's got a full on metal Mjolnir, and it's it it's uber expensive. But it's gorgeous looking. The guy does great work. How heavy was it? Um, I could lift it. But You're not it, worthy. Come on. Yeah, exactly. It's not legit Mjolnir because I, I I could not le- I could not legit lift Mjolnir. So like what do you think? Like how heavy would it have been? I would have to say just guessing maybe thirty to forty pounds. I would use that sucker as a kettlebell. Yep. I yeah. would I would work oh, yeah, out, yeah, I would work out with that. 
I would totally work out with that. I mean, could you imagine working out with Melnier? I mean, like, come on. That would be incredible. Oh, my God. Come on. I mean, Get ripped like Thor. You would just go into the gym carrying that thing, you know, (laughs) dressed as Thor, either from the movies or the comics. Who cares? No. You know, you could even do fat Thor. I wouldn't care. Like, getting into shape, mortals. Yes. Who cares? There you go. Oh, my gosh. That would be so much fun. (laughs) Well, there was uh, there was some there was entertainment. Um, Captain Finn was there to uh, to to entertain the masses. There was a what does Captain Finn do to entertain the masses? Captain Finn and the Salty Dogs is a band. Oh, okay, yeah, they, they, yeah. They, they do they do all sorts of different you know, sea shanties and stuff. Um, really good sound to them. I've had a couple good conversations with him. He's a really cool guy. I like him. You know, of all the things that have happened throughout the past couple of years. The reemergence of she sea shanties has surprised me the most. Oh yeah. yeah. I don't know who was clamoring for it or who um, was jonesing for it or who was asking for it, but from commercials to TikToks to everything, well, and, you can find yourself a sea shanty. And it really it seemed to start on TikTok during the high no, no, no. Tell me where it started. So technically steampunk has had sea shanties for years. Like yeah. I remember Abney Park. Um, years, years, years ago, one of their first steampunk albums had Sea Shanty-esque songs on it. Mm-hmm. Um, so they've always had them, and Pirates, I don't know, Pirates have just gotten super big over the last, like, ten years. Yeah. And that really helped, yeah. but... And I think, with the thing on TikTok, I think people were just looking for something to connect with at the start of the pandemic. And okay. for some reason, it was sea shanties. <laughs> for some I mean, reason, it was why a not? sea shanty. Why not? Well, the thing, well, I'll tell you why not. Because for me, anyway, personal opinion, it got old real fast. Uh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I can only hear the Weller Man so many times before I'm just like, mm, <laughs> yeah. pick a new song, please. Thank yes. you. Yes. Yes. I love it. But it, yeah, no, they need new. There's so many good sea shanties that haven't been covered yet. They, they need to like dig deep. Yeah. Like, Make it a thing or don't make it a thing. Yeah. One or the other. Oh, okay, Millennial Falcons. I hate this part of any podcast. Sad news when uh, icons have passed away. Mark Goddard. Let's start with that one. From uh, Lost in Space. Yeah. Captain Don West. No, he wasn't the captain, but Major Don West. Major Don West, yeah. I loved Lost in Space growing up as a kid. Like, you know, you'd run home from school and it was Lost in Space and then the 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 monsters followed it on WAB out of Cleveland. I mean, it was, it was my sort of first foray into science fiction and horror, yeah. if you will. So for me, um, when I was off sick, like everybody would talk about, everybody would talk about watching The Price Is Right when they were off sick. For me, no, I was watching Star Trek: The Next Generation, Lost yeah. in Space. Yeah, like that was my favorite thing to do when I was off sick. Space Channel. Uh, they had a great lineup of old school sci-fi mm-hmm. on the afternoons, including Lost in Space. Yep, and just yesterday, in fact, just the other like uh, yesterday, Suzanne Summers passed away from Three's yeah. Company. Yeah, yeah. Chrissy Snow from Three's Company. So I, the blonde roommate. I grew up. I I don't think I've actually ever watched more than a couple episodes of Three's Company. I grew up with her and Patrick Duffy. Right. As in what was essentially a remake of the Brady Bunch, step right, by step. Right. Um, that's what I remember her from, and that's that's a part of my childhood, and that is gone. Yeah, and she was a spokesperson for a lot of products a, yeah. a lot of years, but 
one of those personalities that uh, wrote some books, mm -hmm. you know. And of course, sadly, as for us who are horror hounds, horror fans, Piper Laurie played Carrie's mom and uh, Carrie, Mrs. White. She passed away. Academy that... Award nomination for <sighs> that role, as a matter of fact. So one of my favorite stories about her is how she approached the movie. Because the, enti the entire character of Carrie's mother was ridiculous. Yeah, Mrs. Her. White's a bit ridiculous. Yeah. So she actually approached it as a comedy. Yeah. And I think that's amazing. Because she played that up for laughs, and they took her, and they made her so scary. Yeah. And so frightening. Yeah. And that was legendary. Well, it, it was that over-the-top sort of mania that yeah. you can bring into that kind of characterization when you're playing it that way. If we really have the time, because you and I have done, we've all done theater quite extensively, but if you, it's kind of, I hate when I don't have the time to play around with things, right? Because mm -hmm. sometimes it would be nice to do a rehearsal where if you're doing a drama, you do it like a comedy. And if you're doing a comedy, you do it like a drama because mm. it, you find different levels and different tones to it, right? And yeah. then you can pull out some gold, and it really worked well for her. I mean, having the Academy Award nomination for yeah. Best Supporting Actress, and it is it is uh, a story. It's a Stephen King story. We'll be talking about that a little bit later. But a, a story that has never left the zeitgeist of horror. Yeah. Uh, Carrie's been made, remade twice, once for TV and once for a more modern film with uh, Chloe Grace Moretz. And yeah. Um, Actually, Moore. I think it's been remade even more than twice. I think there's two there, made-for-TV movies. There there was also a sequel. No, no I'm not talking about not the talking sequel. About the I'm, I'm talking about an actual... actual. Uh, I think there was two made-for-TV movies. Yeah, it's it, we'd have to look it up, but I'm pretty sure there, I there the, was. I, I was the, surprised by it. I have the made-for-TV movie from the 90s. That, that was actually a good one. It was... Pretty close to it. They did a whole slew. We'll talk. I guess we can talk about it a little bit more later. But they did a whole slew of made-for-TV Stephen King. Yeah, back in the nineties. That's how we got it and the Langoliers and the Shining as yeah. well. But on that note, it is time for Nick's pop culture roundup. <laughs> so to begin off the roundup this week, an original X-wing model from A New Hope has gone to auction and been sold for three point one million dollars like an actual screen yeah used? it was a oh, screen wow. used one uh it was found in the garage of late model maker greg gian now greg gian wasn't actually on um star wars he didn't work on star wars he did work on notable films like close encounters of the third kind star trek the motion picture uh flesh gordon <laughs> uh v the final battle all sorts of stuff like that right but yeah he had a uh, just kind of hanging out there. Yeah, he had a uh, uh, he has passed away. He had a screen used X wing fighter. It was actually, I guess, Red Leader's X wing fighter, mm. and yeah, it sold at auction for three point one mil, which is uh, probably how much it would cost to actually make an X wing. <laughs> Moral of your story is clean out your garage. You never know what you're going to find. Indeed. Um, so there's been a bit of controversy with one of Disney's newest made-for-Disney Plus The movies. hell you say? Disney oh, in controversy these boy. days? Come on. So, I don't believe you. The movie is called Prom Pact, and I could not tell you what this movie's about. I have just seen the scene over and over again. They put AI actors in the background. Oh. And it's bad. It is Ooh. so bad. 
Listeners, listeners, if you haven't seen it, go look up Prompact AI actors. You will see some of the jankiest effects I have ever seen. Like there's one where they feature this one girl in the stands and she's supposed to be clapping, but it looks like she's trying to do the hand jive, baby. Like the one hand's going underneath the other. It is so weird. And they don't look real. She has like the thousand mile stare right ahead of her. Like she's just like trying to clap. And it's all, because it's it's like that, it's all uncanny valley. It looks odd. It looks kind of frightening. I mean, you can make a horror movie out of this stuff alone. And I'll keep, we've been kind of mum on certain topics going on lately. And I'll keep to that. But... I can understand the stance a lot of people are taking as well. If that's yeah. what Disney wants to do. <sighs> Maybe I won't renew a membership. Who knows? Michael Caine has officially retired from acting at the age of 90. Well, you know, you got to retire at some point. <laughs> well, and, and Michael Caine has... Uh, man, that guy has a career. Holy crap. He's got a good career. It's not yeah. just a career. It's an excellent career. Uh, I can't think of a performance of his that I have not enjoyed. I mean, the the one movie of his that I know is a piece of crap, he was still good in it, Jaws the Revenge. Mm -hmm. He was the most enjoyable part of that film up until the shark roars, at which point that's just a a laugh riot. I haven't seen the movie, but I've seen the the (laughs) house that it built for my mother, and it's fabulous. Yeah. (laughs) Um... The Undertaker has briefly returned to WWE. Oh, okay. Yeah, he returned on NXT. They uh, they had a um, AEW had a show on Tuesday night, which is not normal. That's the night that NXT is normally on, and they stacked the card. Oh my good lord! They had all the main eventers from WWE on there, including uh, John Cena was on there, and then Undertaker showed up just randomly as well. And so, yeah, Tim stoned the crap out of everybody. Yeah, basically. Jason Momoa, who currently plays Aquaman, allegedly is going to be the only actor from the old DCEU coming into James Gunn's DCU, but not as Aquaman. Yeah, it's going to be Lobo. I yeah, think. yeah, it looks that way, um, which I think that is perfect casting for it Lobo. It is, yeah. Um, he's got the look. He's got the attitude for it. I, I am remaining ca- cautiously optimistic over all this because i like james gunn i like what he does with his films i like the films that he's made but warner brothers with the dcu with this overarching universe movie universe that they've made they don't have a good track record with it but again cautiously optimistic yeah i have to say i'm not optimistic at all and i don't mean i'm not optimistic in the terms of i don't think james gonna do a good job I just don't care anymore. I, That's fair. I don't want any more. I'm tired of superhero well, movies. I've I've gone a decade with you. I'm getting older. I don't have another decade that I want to invest into this. And with that, I'm going to swing over to Ren to talk to us a little bit about the Taylor Swift movie. Swifty! Yeah. So I went and saw the Taylor Swift movie on October 13th, and it was amazing. Yeah? Um. It's a concert movie, right? So, yeah, it's the concert. It's the Eras Tour concert, which is her latest concert. Um, not only does she cover, like, the six albums that she's released since COVID, but she dives into her earlier stuff as well. Um, so, coming from the, like, stage tech background that I have, it's amazing. 
It is right. stunning. They have, people are referring to it as a 4D experience. They have 3D images that come out over the stage and over the audience. They have, you know, the stuff that falls. They have the smoke. Um, the stage lights up underneath the actors and the dance, like, or underneath the dancers. So in one song, like, Taylor stomps her foot and, like, a lightning bolt cracks out from underneath it underneath her foot out to the edge it's amazing um it currently is grossing 123 million dollars wow so it is the biggest biggest uh tour or um like concert movie tay tay can draw them in holy it's actually just shy of number one opening uh film in october period that's just it's just a little bit behind the joker wow Mm -hmm. Um, it throughout it, she obviously does the concert, like the, the songs, but she also explains some of the work and the ideas that she put into right. it, um, which was really nice. And that was just a little, little fun thing. She actually, one thing that I really loved was she highlighted the band so well, like instead of just being on the sides, they came out, they were doing things with her. Um, the dancers were like being celebrated and. Um, there's a lot of different outfit, like the outfit choices that they had were amazing and all the stuff that was designed for her. But at the end, then she did a big bow for all the dancers, for the backup singers, for the band, which I have not seen in a concert, but, um, it was, it was amazing. Um, a few things that stood out for me during her song Vigilante shit, she was wearing like a 1920s sort of Chicago outfit. She did the chair, like a chair dance. It was so good. Um, the oh look what you made me do she had a lot of different um like videos of her in different outfits and the older outfits and then her backup dancers were in different outfits and that was so cool because they were dancing inside of like clear glass boxes that would spin around and it was oh it was incredible and there's one optical illusion so the, the stage sinks down and she jumps in like dives into the stage goes on it's supposed to be that she goes underneath it and like there's an optic illusion of her swimming underneath the stage and then she comes up, climbs a ladder and then ends up back on where she was in the beginning. Wow. But like the illusions was were just amazing. The 3D elements, the light changes, how the stage was set up and no matter where she was on the stage, alone or whatever it was, she owned that stage. No wonder concert tickets cost so much. It... And I thought it was ridiculous how much concert tickets cost. Like, I was like, oh, I'll never spend, like, $1,000 for it. If I had the chance and I had that money lying around after I saw that movie, I'd be all over it. Yeah. Because not only that, but, like, they had bracelets and, like, necklaces that would light up to, to have the effect in the audience with the people. It was incredible. Wow. One of the best concerts I've seen. So, six albums since lockdown, or since the pandemic. I believe, Yeah. So that tells me she did, when when the lockdowns happened, she did one thing. She sat down and started writing music. Yep, yep. She nothing did, else to do, I guess. Yeah, she did two that were like a story kind of thing, which she had never done before. And then she re-released her, her version of ones, which was re-recorded and redone for um, her what she like changed. But yeah, it was amazing. And to see her come out through all the stuff that she's been through and all the insults and name-calling and everything and come out and basically own the entire world um yeah it's pretty cool there are very few artists that 
go on to that level of being what, what is legitimately a special event, a true attraction. Mm-hmm. And I, I like the fact that Taylor Swift is one of them. Yeah. Well, one thing that I did was I saw um, Exorcist Believer. Saw that in movie theaters. And uh, I'm not sure how I feel about it. Not really quite sure how I feel about it because as a possession movie, it was actually a pretty decent horror movie. As an exorcist follow-up, kind of dull. You know what I mean? Like, there's sort of a a difference because The Exorcist is 50 years old now. Mm -hmm. At least the the movie version. Now, have you guys ever read William Blady's novel? I haven't. Oh, I have. It's so much richer. Because it's a novel, right? Yeah. Obviously. So you get into the, the depth of it and the meat of it and the Captain Howdy and all that kind of stuff. Like it is, it's a phenomenal read. How close is it to the story that it's always, that's based on? It's been some time since I've read it, but I would say that the flavor is there. Like, I mean, obviously whenever something is based on, yeah, it's not 100% accurate. But I mean, Freakin did a great job with that movie. It is mm-hmm. like the big kahuna of the movies. Probably one of the first real adaptations of of uh you know faithfully adapt adaptations of a horror novel that I, in my lifetime that i can think of because i mean ever since i was a kid i mean i was that's 50 years old i was four when exorcist came out so my entire life has always been in the shadow of this horror movie this mm-hmm. granddaddy of horror right but I mean, that where does it all start from? Like, it starts with these great novels, these great horror literatures. But I mean, it, horror literature, which is what we're talking about today, that is our main topic. That goes back centuries. Oh yeah. Where where oh, where, yeah. where do we want to start? Um. Well, it goes all the way back to like the myths and folklore, right? Yeah. But I mean, the horror genre as we kind of know it now has been kind of claimed by Mary Shelley. Yeah, so there's a bunch of benchmarks, right? Yeah. So, yeah. so we've, we've got the benchmark of, I mean, we, we, we're not going to talk about Bram Stoker because we talked about that with the vampire episode, yeah. right? So but, let's start with Mary Shelley. Yeah, Mary Shelley was the one that kind of keyed and made the horror genre, literature genre, as what it is. Um, so, yeah, and that, as we kind of covered before, but it had to do with um, a bunch of, people were sitting in someone's vacation home and they <laughs> said like lord byron said uh let's all write a ghost story and apparently it took mary or mary godwin at the time but took her days to come up with something and they're like oh well do you have anything she's like no 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 i don't so they probably you know counted her off as oh you're yeah. not gonna do it she's just a woman <laughs> yeah but i guess uh she started thinking like maybe a corpse could be reanimated and then through like nightmares she came up with this story yeah there's a movie called gothic which is about that whole thing yeah but like she was unable to sleep and started writing out this nightmare that ended up being frankenstein that's fabulous i mean i I know that story but that is every time you hear it it just kind of sends chills down your spine because Really, when you think about it, Mary Shelley is probably the person that, because the Frankenstein monster technically would be a form of a zombie. Mm -hmm. So you could argue that she gave birth to the zombie genre. Yeah. Um, Because it's 
technically the the novel is Frankenstein or the modern Prometheus. Right. Um. So in 1818, she sat down and like it blows my mind every time that she created a genre. Yeah. And then got it printed, which was also amazing. And that because title. as a woman in Victorian era, like you don't you don't yeah. get things printed. Like, but that title is very telling because, as we all know, it is like the monster is not Frankenstein. Frankenstein is the creator. Yeah. He's the scientist, yes. right? So when you have that title, Frankenstein or the modern Prometheus, it's a very rich layer to the story because all of a sudden you have this idea that Victor Frankenstein is playing in the realm of gods. Right, he's playing with God, and he's just flying a little too close to the sun because of all the ramifications that come from creating life, which a human being is not supposed to do because that is the the realm and the power of God. So it's it becomes this really uh, interesting story just from that title alone. I feel I, I found a bit of a quote about it, and I kind of kind of wonder. Um, so it's a, she said. I saw the pale student of unhallowed arts kneeling beside the thing he had put together. I saw the hideous phantasm of a man stretched out and then on the working of some powerful engine show signs of life and stir with an uneasy half vital motion. Frightful must it be for supremely frightful would be the effect of any human endeavor to mock the stupendous mechanism of the creator of the world. Wow. Like that's, and that's, that was a moment after she wrote Frankenstein was a moment that she stepped out of childhood into life. Wow. Wow. That's profound. It, it is. Yeah. And I just want to say at some point in my life, I want somebody to refer to me as a hideous phantasm. <laughs> I do every time you're not around. <laughs> Another fun little fact about Mary Shelley, when her husband died, she carried his heart around with her for the rest of her life. Wow. Like in a jar? like Yeah. He carried his heart around. Like she would just be walking is, down the street with a jar? She's like the original gothic chick. She's um, so emo. But, wow. and then on February 1st of 1851, she died of brain cancer. Oh, That's wow. a, kind of a sad end. Yeah, yep. But you know, it's it's really kind of fascinating because uh, let's uh, let's come across the pond here. Let's go to Boston around the same time, talking about one of uh, America's big Gothic literature icons, Edgar Allan Poe. Uh, pretty much around the same time as Mary Shelley, maybe about a decade after Frankenstein was published, mm -hmm. Poe first gets gets published. Uh, he was born in eighteen oh nine. Had a short life. Died at the age of forty, under really kind of mysterious circumstances like, like why was he in somebody else's clothes we don't know <laughs> he can't tell he he's in his brain fog of being found and just before he passed away he kept uttering uh, i think it was uh, the name reynolds so i don't know if ryan reynolds had a time machine and was messing with them but it's <laughs> But it's like, we don't know who Reynolds is, and to this day on his birthday, somebody mysteriously puts roses on his grave, right? So the mystery continues into 2023. I mean, it's... It, and I, I think that even, like, I'm always kind of upset that 
younger generations don't really care about stuff that comes before them. But even they, I think, know about Edgar Allan Poe, right? Well, when you look at the movie, well, I mean, look at what has been inspired or just straight up based off of Edgar Allan Poe. Uh, the 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 the, fall the very of the first ha- Treehouse of Terror. Exactly the 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 fall of the House of Usher just came out. There's the uh, the Pale Blue Eye. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, like a lot of all those stuff. Vincent Price movies of the yeah. '60s based on on the, the Raven, mm-hmm. um, the the Pit in the Pendulum. The pendulum. I, I love Vincent Price. I love those movies. They're great movies. Very loosely based on Poe's works. Well, but... yes, but the the fact of the matter is, he's that prolific that he has just inspired so much of pop culture and it's the same thing with mary shelley as yeah, well but I, I, mean, I think what it is is it's what we're seeing with with poe particularly a, a little bit more than shelley is the birth of gothic literature or at least american gothic literature right? yeah i can i can see that i can see that um but who was the first american short story uh, who was short story author i should say yeah. not like the first author but the first popular short story yeah. author it's also one of like the big mysteries too, especially with Baltimore. Like you go down there and you're like, okay, let's try to figure out. You know, people try to figure out what happened to Poe and did he have to do with the elections? Did he just get drunk and change his clothes? Like it's it's a big huge draw to Baltimore. You know, I speaking of Baltimore, which I know is where he's from, but I never pieced it together until you told me. That that is why their football team is called the Ravens. Yep. Yep. That's cool. <laughs> yep. Oh yeah. And West Point, you know, celebrates that he I mean, he didn't go there for very long as far as I'm no, aware. No, he, he didn't, didn't have go a good career long. there, but he went to West Point and that's a, you know, they have their own claim to fame, but still. Yeah. So part of the reason he got into the army was because like people don't understand that his parents passed away and then the oddly enough oddly enough a family the patriarch of the family that didn't officially adopt him but took him in his name was john allen no there you go hence you get edgar allen poe oh right because he was edgar poe and then edgar allen poe from the allens that took him in you're welcome um (laughs) But when he went into the army, he wasn't working at the time or anything like that. So he was unable to support himself because at this point, he's like 18 years old. Oh, get out of the house, make your way into the world. Uh, so he enlisted in the United States Army under the uh, pseudonym, under the different name of Edgar A. Perry. Uh, and he claimed that he was 22, even though he was only 18. But there, he was only getting like $5 a month in the army. I mean, mm-hmm. 18 something or other i mean like uh, you're not gonna be getting a whole lot of money so that was like can you imagine working for five dollars a month no like five whole bucks a month but that year he released his first book a 40-page collection of poetry titled tamerlan and other poems and uh and he just even it was anonymous he it was published by a bostonian oh yeah, he. I don't think he took much credit for the or got the credit for the work. No, until only much only, later. Yeah, only fifty copies of that were yeah. were done, right? But I mean, from the Telltale Heart to the Raven to, I, I mean, these are just rich stories that anybody that likes Gothic literature, anybody that likes horror, you cannot call yourself a true fan of this kind of stuff 
just from movies alone, you have to delve into it and you have to give credit to Poe because Poe influenced our next author that Nick's going to talk about. And it's, it's interesting because they're both kind of from the same area, you know, East Coast. A lot of the stories are mixed into Massachusetts, but H.P. Lovecraft. Oh, yes. So H.P. Lovecraft um, was a little bit further out there than Shelley and Poe. A lot of his his stories revolved around cosmicism, cosmic horror. Uh, the, the color in space. The color in space. Uh, or out of H- space. Or- color out of space, yes. The color out of space. H.P. Lovecraft uh, was born in 1890. So he's he was born kind of at the the end yeah. of that, that yeah. era. Yeah, because Poe was born in 1809 and died in 1849. He was only yeah. 40 years old when, when yeah. he died. That's just a shame. But you can see you can see how these other art these other authors inspired Poe, especially with Edgar Allan Poe being based out of uh, uh, Massachusetts. You mean they were inspired by yeah. Poe? Yeah, inspired by Poe. Yeah, Howard Phillips Lovecraft. Yes, Howard Phillips Lovecraft. Old Howie was <laughs> known to be a bit of a racist. Uh, that, that, that's like that's like saying I'm known to be a bit of a Canadian. <laughs> yeah, so back in the day, all the old racist white guys told him to tone it back a little bit. Yeah, you know you're you know you're like the ultra racist. You are like the 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 end boss racist when all the other racists are saying, Don't you think you're a little racist? But here's the thing though, I and this is my own personal interpretation of it. If you've read Shadow over Innsmouth, it's not I mean there's hatred in there, yes. But the, the racism comes out of fear of change. The man is a very, he's a very insecure little man, afraid of change. Mm-hmm. And that's where his, the horror in his stories comes from. That's his own personal hell, right. is the change. And that informs all of his mythos, the Cthulhu mythos, um, all the other things I can't properly pronounce and I'm not going to bother but it's really it's Miskatonic really, University. Yeah, uh, Miskatonic, um, which there's so many different stories. Innsmouth being my favorite, but you of course have at the Mountain of Madness. You have uh, the uh, Herbert West Reanimator. Yeah, you have all that color color out of space. Yeah, all the old gods, all the old ones. They are. It is a an insanely huge universe that he created. Uh, along with uh, colleagues like Robert Howard, who right. created Conan, yeah, that's all steeped in there. And the influence that he has had on modern works, like if you look at Dungeons and Dragons, there's all sorts yeah. of H.P. Lovecraft monsters in, and inspired monsters interspersed in there. Guillermo del Toro, when he did Hellboy, he outright had a giant tentacle monster. Yeah, it's it's all in there. And it has inspired so many modern authors and so many modern filmmakers and so many modern artists. Like if you, if you look, if you hunt around the internet, you can find some really neat, neat art based on H.P. Lovecraft. And it's interesting too, because I think I would, I would credit Mary Shelley um, for this first, but this is like really early on body horror. You know, like there's like the, some of the stuff I've read it because I've got the, yeah. the set, which they call the oddly enough the Necronomicon, which is not the same thing as from you know uh, yeah. Evil Dead. But 
I've got all of H.P. Lovecraft's stories. I have all of Poe's stories, you know, and it's when you consider how long ago they were written for these things to include the body horror that they do is really kind of uh, outstanding. It is. And it, again, it all comes down to his fear of change, like looking at the shadow over Innsmouth. The main character, and I'm not going to do a spoiler alert for a book that's nearly 100 years old, or possibly older, <laughs> um, but the main character winds up becoming one of the, the fishman creatures from Innsmouth. He becomes what he fears. And it's, it's really, that is the body horror, is becoming what you fear. And it, it's, it's, I think it's very easy to say that if we didn't have H.P. Lovecraft, we wouldn't have certain classics like The Fly, like The Thing, stuff like that, where it is very, the, the idea of it, the idea of the body horror is so intrinsic to the story that you can't even, and I'll, I'll even say like the original Fly even has that, although it's nowhere near as extreme, but it still has that aspect of the body horror because he still turns into a fly. Right, right. So what's really kind of just bringing out the giddiness in me about all of this is the fact that we've mentioned three very iconic authors, right? And all three of them have seen their works turned into, well, they didn't see it, but I mean, we've, <laughs> seen, we've seen their works turned into great movies, right? Mm -hmm. And like Frankenstein persists. And how many different versions are there of that Frankenstein monster, oh, whether it's man. the original with Boris Karloff, mm -hmm. whether it's the remake that Kenneth Branagh did, which is a lot more like Mary Shelley's original mm -hmm. novel, whether it's Frankenberry, yeah. whether it's... Young Frankenstein. Yeah, yeah um, <laughs> the Flintstones meet Frankenstone. The Young Frankenstein. Let's talk about Young Frankenstein uh, for just a A minute. work of art. Oh. oh my gosh, that is one of the funniest movies when we talk about Mel Brooks. Like, we can't talk about it without Young Frankenstein. But Peter Boyle as the monster was the perfect choice for that because it's almost a, it's almost a completely silent role. And you, you pair him with Marty Feldman, Gene Wilder, uh, Madeline Kahn, Terry Garr. I mean, it was a perfect cast. Cloris Leachman as Frau Blurker. Cue the horses! <laughs> but, like, if you look at that, that visage, and it really does come from Boris Karloff's uh, version of yeah. Frankenstein. We see that. We know that's Frankenstein. The flathead, we know, yeah, the we bolts, know, yeah. all that stuff. That's the Frankenstein monster. Instantly recognizable. Yeah. Um, and it, it's it's amazing how something like that has permeated not just pop culture, but culture in general. Well, yeah. I mean, like, first of all, I don't even imagine that Edgar Allan Poe could have even envisioned animation, let alone that centuries later, The Simpsons would be doing The Raven. In their very first Treehouse of Terror. I love that. I love that one um, so much. Quote the Raven, eat my shorts. <laughs> they had an entire episode of the Gilmore Girls that had to do with the Edgar yeah. Allan Poe Society. Yeah, visit. yeah like, they, they did a, a semi-autobiography movie, fiction autobiography, fiction autobiography, not really sure, based on real things with John Cusack. Yeah, the, yeah, the, the Raven. Cusack, it was called yeah. The Raven, right? And as I said, Vincent Price... Peter Laurie, all those guys doing those things. And, of course, one of our favorite series coming from Lovecraft, mm -hmm. the Reanimator series. I So talk about body horror. Oh, oh yeah. my. 
Oh, man. Um, so, yeah, first and foremost, uh, one of my favorite, and I think one of the more um, notable horror and Star Trek actors out there, Jeffrey Coombs. Mm-hmm. Um, didn't get a start from the series, but it really put him on the map. The The series is gross, it's visceral, and it is everything that is Lovecraft. And of course you mentioned Jeffrey Coombs, and I'm going to mention, you know, my, my horror crush, Barbara Crompton. I mean, like, oh, she was spectacular in those movies. And she's still she's still doing it. She's still out there. Uh, she was recently on the Boulay Brothers Halfway to Halloween special, and she was kind of spoofing all that stuff. It was so great to see her because she's in this beautiful 50s-style dress, and she's, like, doing this cooking segment, and it's all about uh, cooking up, you know, human flesh. Oh <laughs> it was great. Quick sidebar about her. I love the fact that she is producing a lot of horror now. Yeah. She's starring in a lot of stuff that she's producing as well. She was in this movie last year called Superhost, which was a fun little jaunt into the uh, the Airbnb uh, horror yeah. genre. But yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I, I love the Reanimator series. Jeffrey Coombs, it's one of those movies that shows how utterly disturbing that man can be on screen. Yeah. It, you know, a lot of these actors, they're very... Uh, unsung heroes of, of mm-hmm. film, right? Because the horror genre hasn't always gotten a lot of respect, right? But it's it's a fun genre. And and as we can see from movies to movies, influence to influence, we're going to now look at these three uh, authors that we mentioned and talk about some of the modern authors. Yeah. Ren, who do you have? Um. Well, I picked Neil Gaiman. I absolutely adore him. Um, his work. So I'm probably a little uh, behind in some of his books and stuff. But like I started reading Good Omens years, 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 years ago, like back in high school. Now it's turned into a huge series. But like, yeah, Good Omens, the Sandman comics, uh, American Gods, Coraline. He has so many books. Um, but I don't know. I, I always find... Coraline was like the first one that I really watched. Yeah. And I was like, how is this a kid's book? I know, how, <laughs> no, right? How is this written for children? Like, it, it probably wasn't. <laughs> well, it's supposed to be a kid's book. Yeah. But I was like, mm. there, There is a certain point in time prior to, I want to say the, the 90s uh, sanitization of everything, yeah. when stuff that was made for kids was really kind of scary. Yeah. But that was written in 2002. Well, Neil Diamond comes from another time. <laughs> well, true, yes. well, I don't know. I mean, 2002, by that point, I mean, you're you're looking at the popularity of things like The Nightmare Before Christmas. Right? Yeah. So, I yeah. mean, like, I think that people underestimate that kids kind of enjoy this kind of stuff. Yes, like, I know, I know I certainly did. It was that idea of, of hiding in the bedroom with that monster comic or that monster magazine or nothing that was too visceral or graphic, right? But just that, that, you like to be scared in a way. And even though like you, maybe you're terrified when you go to bed and your mother warns, that's it. No more monster movies. No more. It's like, okay. Then next Saturday, what can I find? (laughs) A lot of uh, his influences were like more, more than just the horror authors. C.S. Lewis, Tolkien. Yeah. There's a real Um, fantasy element to it. Yeah. Mary Shelley, uh, Rudyard Kipling and then Edgar Allan Poe yeah. and also Monty Python. 
part of what I really started to pay attention to his work a lot when like I was on Tumblr and stuff because he would interact with his fans a lot on Tumblr. But also when he married Amanda Palmer, I kind of really started paying attention to his stuff. Just because, I don't know, I love Amanda Palmer anyway, but... Um, so I recently opened up a, uh, a Blue Sky account. I mm-hmm. uh, got an invitation to that. And he's on there. I, f- I followed him. And yeah, he's still heavily interacting with everybody. Oh, yeah. He's a lovely, lovely man. Well, there was someone that asked if he could use him in a... a a paper for school and the teacher was like well you can't call him by his first name because he's not your friend so he messaged him and the, the student messaged him and said hey uh can i use you by your first name in my paper like if you're my friend and neil's like yeah sure we're friends now have fun like <laughs> there you go like he's just he's such a sweet guy and when he described how he felt like he had imposter syndrome mm-hmm. like and he was just like, I shouldn't be here. And then Neil Armstrong also had imposter syndrome in that same story. Like, I connected with that so well. And he's so just honest about things. Well, he brings in the fantasy in a dark way that is mm-hmm. beautiful and surreal. And just, it, it, it hits a note. And one of my favorite stories, uh, and also one of my favorite movies from that kind of formula gaming, is Stardust. I just loved what they did with that whole story in the movie and the aesthetics of it. You got Michelle Pfeiffer, you have Peter O'Toole, you have Claire Danes. I mean, Robert De Niro. Like, they all, just that image of watching Michelle Pfeiffer playing this witch. And she's in this little chariot and it's being pulled by goats and it's black. And it's one of the first things she did um, coming back into Hollywood because she took some time off to you know, raise her family and mm-hmm. so forth. And it's one of the, she came back with a vengeance in that movie. Like it was just beautiful to watch her do this. Right. But that story is so surreal. Like the other mother in Coraline and the other father in Coraline. And I think that that's kind of where Gaiman really shines. Right. Because it's this idea of, kids trying to make sense of the world around them and it doesn't make much sense and it must seem very surreal to them as a child with you know like when their parents are mad at them i really kind of feel like that's the the message of the other mother yeah you know it's like yeah you've got this sweet mother that looks after you when you're sick and pats your brow and bakes you cookies and then you have the other mother that is it gets ticked off at you when you're it's not acting the idea of Careful what you wish what you wish for, but for children. Because yeah. Coraline's like, well, I wish I would run away. Yeah. Well, she ran away, and then look what happened. Yeah, but, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, just uh, that's a great choice. Mm-hmm. Great choice. Nick, I know you want to talk about one that uh, you are the reason. You are the whole reason why we have a trigger warning at the start of this episode. Yeah. So, literally, the horrors of sexuality. Clive <laughs> Barker. So you've been talking to my ex-girlfriends? Oh. <laughs> ooh, ooh. All right. So Clive Barker Clive Barker's one of these guys. Now and, you, and again, you can see a lot of the influence of say H.P. Lovecraft in this right. because Clive Barker also deals with a lot of cosmic horror. And he is all about the body horror. He is all about the body horror. Um, we have but, such sights to show you. 
the thing is, though, is Cl Clive Barker is a gay man, and he grew up in uh, in England at a point in time where that was not okay. Yeah. Um, you could be arrested. When yeah. was he born? Uh, he was born in 52. Oh, okay. Uh, so he he spent a lot of time in the underground S&M clubs, underground gay clubs in London. And that really, when you look at a lot of his stories, like Nightbreed, for example, where a man uh, goes underground with a crew of monsters, you see the influence there. But a lot of his books also um, take into account trauma and abuse. Like when you look at Rawhead Rex, for example, that is... That is 100% someone who has been abused working through that trauma. Yeah. Just the way, one, the way that Rex is physically described, and two, the way he is mentally described, because unlike the movie, which is not great, um, and I'll talk about that in a second, but Rex is very, very intelligent, but he regards, like, he's, and he's completely aware of the atrocity that, that he's going through, that he's acting out on, but he regards the humans in the story as little more than cattle or insects. He knows they're alive. He knows they have feelings. He just doesn't care. And yeah, okay, sure, you can you can twist that around into vegetarian vegetarianism and all that, whatever. But the main idea is, yeah, it's it's abuse. It's it's trauma. Now, one of the neat things though about the Rawhead Rex movie, and it's it's kind of cool because this. It became kind of a trend afterwards for authors to become more involved in the movies that are based off their books. Yeah, because that's not good. <laughs> yeah, when when after Rawhead Rex came out, Clive Barker was like, all right, I am completely involved in Hellraiser. <laughs> that is a thing because Rawhead Rex was crap. So funny story with me and Rawhead Rex. When I was younger, I was scared to watch this movie. I was so scared to watch this movie because... I thought it was this frightening, awful, evil-looking monster. And then I saw it, and I couldn't stop laughing. Uh, but after Rawhead Rex, yeah, Clive Barker made sure that he was more involved in the productions of his film, directing of his film, or the films based on his books, to the point that he got his old high school friend, Doug Bradley, cast as, uh, as the head Cenobite, who would, who would later become known as Pinhead. Which I thought is really cool, but you see, you see, the influence, the personal trauma that other that others have put into their stories. He really takes that and puts that into his stories. Yeah. The cosmic horror of Lovecraft, the mm -hmm. idea that there's these creatures out there in the ether that can come for you. Right. It is there. It, the whole visage but, of but it is terrifying. The, it's also the humanization of it because you were talking about Nightbreed. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, here you have these this group of people who are seen as monsters, you know, obviously an allegory for the, the gay yeah. underground. And it's the police that are coming for them. And who's the real monsters? Well, it turns out it's not the freaks that are living uh, in in the underground where they're, they're living. It's the authorities and it's the psychologist and it's yeah. all them. And, you know, so it's this, this really sort of grand tale told from his perspective, mm -hmm. you know, and... It's it's subversive and it's uh, perverse in a way and it's really 
it's it's really richly layered too, and I, I yeah. think that's what a lot of people don't understand about horror literature and about horror movies that I keep trying to tell them. It's like the good ones aren't just schlock, and that's all they see is they just see the schlock. Mm-hmm. The good ones have a message to them. They have a story to them. They have an allegory, and you need to find those ones. The schlock is fun. Grab your popcorn, grab whatever, but that's all it is. It's candy. Yeah. You know, you want the meat and potatoes. Mm-hmm. That's where you really want to go with it. Now, I get it. It's not for everybody. They don't want to see the images. They don't want to have the nightmares. But you're also missing out, in my opinion, on a very rich layer of, of, of cinema and literature and just, I mean, because fairy tales, right? Fairy tales were the first cautionary tales. And you're missing out on all of this lore and it's... It, it troubles me that people do. So I have not seen the original Hellraisers or anything, but I watched the latest one that came out with a group of friends online. Um, and they were kind of all like scoffing at it a little bit because they were like, oh, like, what's this? This is like weird imagery and this is weird. And they were kind of making fun of it a little bit. And I think that I might have been there too, except that Nick described to me like, the imagery that went into the books, just Clive Barker stuff in general. And I'm like, oh, I totally, it it unlocked this whole other layer of the Hellraiser movie that I was like, oh, that makes a lot more sense. And it hit a lot harder than I think it would if I just watched it saying, okay, yeah, it's Hellraiser, like this, yeah. When I, going back to the whole idea of the body car for a second, and people don't like that, when I saw the most recent version of Color Out of Space with Nick Cage. Oh my god! I was not ready for any no, of that. No, I don't, I really, honestly, being not the big horror hound, I really don't like body horror all that much. I don't like that. To me, it's just, ugh. I, I mean, I can handle it, but I don't necessarily, that's not my first go-to. <laughs> See, I, I like the body horror, not just because of the, the horrifying image of it, because I love the effects that go into it. Yeah. I like thinking about what they did to get there. That's why I really dig John Carpenter's The Thing, because the effects that went into, into that, absolutely amazing. Well, listen, I'm going to be honest. I'm a bit squeamish. The first time I tried to watch Hellraiser, you know that scene where you see the nail and you see the hand and you see... Mm-hmm. I, I just sat there and went, no, I'm out. Because <laughs> that, to me, that's a very real thing. And then whenever something gets real like that, I I I I am gonna be honest. I want to pass out. I really do. But that, and that's really the interesting thing that I think you've hit the the, the, the nail, nail on the, the head, head <laughs> is that for Clive Barker's stories, a lot of it is stuff that's hard to come to terms with becoming the reality, mm-hmm. and that that's just a tantalizing thing for yeah. me that you brought that up. Well, yeah, because what he hits on is the idea that I mean. In my therapies that I do for my back, it hurts, but feels good. So there's he's he's really tied into that pleasure and pain. Yeah, kind exactly. Of thing, right? Exactly. I, I oh I just love that. Anyway, uh John. Before we get to our final author that we're gonna talk about, let's do some honorable mentions. Um, I'm going to do honorable mentions for HG Wells. Jules Verne, Ray, Brad, Ray Bradbury. Yeah, and those are good choices because yeah. science fiction and horror do go hand in hand a lot. Do yeah, they, ever. they do. 
And, I mean, then there's Anne Rice. Well, let's face it. I mean, just oh. Let's go back to H.G. Wells for a minute. There is nothing more terrifying than those damn Morlocks in the time machine. Oh. Okay, but also, yeah, it's that. And also, though, one of the biggest horror stories that, you know, was seen to be real and worked on people's fears was War of the Worlds and then the radio broadcast. Yes, yes. Like, that, that hit... Orson Welles, yeah, because so many people. people didn't have television. It was a radio broadcast, exactly. and if you're just tuning into the radio on that fateful Halloween night, yeah. and you hear that Martians have invaded, this is Orson Welles telling you to run for the hills. <laughs> if I had a time machine and I had one chance to go back and then come forward, like just one, and it was done, I would pick that night. That would, I would be cool. pick that, that would, night. That would be cool. I would watch the chaos because I knew it wasn't real, right? But like, I'd watch the chaos. Just play out, and then I'd come back and be satisfied with my life. The three oh my of us in a TARDIS with popcorn and drinks just oh. going, yeah. I, I'd be all over that. So I'm actually surprised that they haven't, at least to my knowledge, made a movie about that night. Oh, they, somebody probably will at some point. Yeah. I, I don't know how you do. It's kind of... I mean, what... You, you, oh, they did, actually. They did a documentary about about it. And had actual video, because I remember seeing oh, really? it had actual video of right. them recording everything in the radio show and, like, the effects that they had. Now, you had mentioned Anne Rice. Yeah, Anne Rice. We were talking a little bit about her during our vampire episode. Yep. We got her and uh, Jim Butcher, who does a lot of... He does the Dresden Files series. Okay, yeah. Which is a lot of the magic and vampires, werewolves. It's sometimes more of a comedy because, like, you know, the werewolf pack plays D&D every week and all that kind of stuff. But and yeah. you can bribe pixies with pizza, but it's... <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like I can credit Anne Rice for bringing, like, vampires out of the shadows a little bit in the 80s and 90s. And, yeah. and sort of, I would say that she's the one that sort of springboarded that vampire craze. Mm-hmm. I'm going to bring up just one honorable mention. Just going back to the whole idea of the marriage of sci-fi and horror... Michael Crichton. Mm-hmm. I don't care. Like I, I, we we've had the discussion before about the Jurassic Park movie. Is Jurassic mm-hmm. Park horror or not? No, not really. But that book, that book is a horror sci-fi. Yeah, that has some of the most frightening imagery I have ever seen in a book. I have three honorable mentions that are going to tie in with our last author that we're going to talk about. One is Dean Koontz. Dean Koontz is a horror author who's. Had a certain amount of fame. Uh, Mr. Murder was turned into uh, a movie. Um, Jeff Goldblum Phantoms. starred. Yeah, Phantoms. Great author. Wonderful author. I, I've read a few of his books. Really like it. In fact, his book, Mr. Murder, was uh, the one book. I've never done this before, but I picked up a book where I couldn't get the image of the cover out of my head. And I thought, this is such a fascinating artistic cover where it's just this white cover with a black snowflake you know and i just went what is this book all so about you did judge the book by its cover i did literally judge the book <laughs> by its cover and i picked it up and i read the synopsis and i put it back and i went thought about it for days and days says, i'm going back and i got the book couldn't get it out of my mind um john saul and peter straub they were big authors back in the 70s and 80s of the horror genre i can honestly say i have not read any of their books because i wasn't really into that but both of these men did partnerships with our last author it is the one the only we cannot talk about horror literature without talking about 
literally the king himself, Stephen King. Mm -hmm. We all know that story about how he was a struggling... Like he had many jobs, right? He was mm -hmm. struggling in Maine. He was married to his wife, Tabitha. They had kids on the way. He was an English teacher. He was working in... He worked in car washes. He worked in laundromats. Hated all those jobs. Wrote Carrie. Read it. And decided it was garbage and threw it in the waste paper basket. Yeah, legit. I've never heard this. Oh, yeah. Okay, you I haven't mean, heard this? No. Tabitha, his wife, comes along, picks it out out of the garbage can, reads it, and says, what's the matter with you? This is good. <laughs> it's because authors make their own work. <laughs> I'm paraphrasing, of course. Paraphrasing. I, I just want to take a moment to point out, this is another steeped in an East Coast, East Coast author. Yeah, well, because he does credit the whole fact. He credits Lovecraft. A lot of these authors that I mentioned... John Saul, Peter Straub, Stephen King, a lot of these modern horror writers credit Lovecraft as being the godfather of modern horror. Yeah. It's because it's the East Coast of the U.S., and I am for sure 100% convinced the Appalachian Mountains have some shit in them, and that makes some crazy people. But it's not just that. You've, <laughs> you've got the Appalachian Mountains. You've got... Like, it, it, I've never been to Maine, but the description of the forests and how thick they are there. like It's you, the oldest part of the world. Yeah, like there has can, to be stuff there. You can walk in there like to take a whiz, let's say, and now you can't find your car. Yeah. You're done. Oh my gosh, you're going to die. I am 100% sure there are vampires in them there woods. Well, not just vampires, but Sasquatch and Did. whatever. But I mean... <laughs> Yeah, but it, it goes quite along there. You got Roanoke, right? Like it, oh it's all it, there on the East Coast. The East Coast, in and of itself, I think, is a frightening place until you get to Canada, where it's just a bunch of people, you know, uh, doing screech and 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 kissing fish and, and kissing 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 <laughs> sure. kissing the cod and yeah, and and, cod. and farming lobster. You know, but I mean, mm, it's lobster. it's it's just a wonderful area, I think. And but Stephen King always talks about. What influenced him? Because the question he always got was, where do you get your ideas from? You know, and it's been described that Stephen King can sit there and be at a supermarket, see a shopping cart. And it's like, I can turn that into a horror story. And he seems to be able to do that. And I think... You made a joke about that on Family Guy. Well, I think the thing is, like, he talks about the influence. He says, you know, people have criticized his writing because, you know... It came along in the 70s. And you have to remember the 70s. It was nicknamed the Satanic 70s, where you had all this Satanism and all this other stuff going along, right? So there's all this weird... The, the Warrens are having their heyday with Amityville <laughs> Horror and all this kind of stuff, and there's charlatanism that you can't prove is charlatanism and everything else. So he sat there and he said, it's interesting that people blame me for creating monsters when I'm the monster that they created themselves. I'm, I'm paraphrasing mm -hmm. that quote. I don't have that quote. It comes um, from Stephen King, Writing on Writing or Dance Macabre, one of the autobiographical books that he wrote himself. But he's like, how did you expect me to not write this stuff when I grew up in the atomic age? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know? Like, he was born in 1947, and as a child, all through the 1950s, it's like, duck and cover, little Stevie. Get under the, get under that. There's a threat of nuclear war, and all these horrible images are going to come down your way. And, you know, it's like, yeah, and there he is living in Maine, and all this stuff. I mean, it's terrible. But, I mean, he writes in a way. Our friend Marilyn Barron 
described it this way. She goes, what she loves about reading Stephen King novels is that he makes you smell things. He's so descriptive, like she can actually smell what he's describing. And I read Gerald's game, and this is exactly where it hit home, that that quote from Marilyn, where he's talking about her getting out of the handcuffs. <gasps> I have never had to put a book down because I thought I was going to, one, throw up, two, pass out, because it's called gloving. Yeah. And it's, I'm not going to describe it, but it's uh, inducing. To the quote that he said, uh, my object is, oh, I, you know what? I'm going to, you go ahead, Nick. I'm going to look up the quote. I want to get this quote right. So with the gloving scene, I have not read Gerald's Game. I have not seen the movie, although I really should. But I know this scene. And I know how graphic it is. And I know how graphic it is in the book. And I know how... Um, they really went to that level of graphicness in the, to capture it in the movie as well. And the idea of it just pains me. Right. It pains me. Yeah, so th this is the quote that I wanted to get absolutely right. Stephen King said, I recognize terror as the finest emotion, and so I will try to terrorize the reader. But if I find that I cannot terrify, I will try to horrify. And if I find I cannot horrify, I'll go for the gross out. That is a wonderful way to describe his writing. See, and, and this, is, this is the thing that always bothers me is, and I wish I could, I can't read King. I've tried so many times with a bunch of his books, and I just cannot get into his writing. That's my own problem. That, that is your own problem. That's my own problem. But this we can't all, be friends anymore. But this is why I appreciate the adaptations of his movies, because his stories are wonderful, and I can digest the movies, no problem. Yeah, but as we've said, a lot of those movies are nothing like the story. That is fairly true. Now, uh, the ones that I think are most like it, honestly, is The Mist, mm -hmm. most like it. Children of the Corn, they took the best parts of the Children of the Corn and expanded on it, so I mean, that's there. Which version of Children of the Corn? The original. The original one? Yeah. Oh, oh. God, yes. Oh. Oh, God, yes. No, there is... Listen, listen, Ren. Listen. Faithful aliens, there is one version of the Children of the Corn. It was made in the 1980s. <laughs> the rest of them are pure and utter garbage. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God, yeah. <laughs> um, so, so now my train of thoughts derailed because there was a, a third one in there that I thought was really good. But recently, having seen The Boogeyman, that disappointed me so much because, like, based on a Stephen King story... Uh, like one scene, maybe you based on the story. The rest of it is completely made up fiction. But if you look at something like Night Shift, right, mm -hmm. that one they whoever wrote the screenplay for it found a way to write like Stephen King. Mm -hmm. So it, having read that short story, it's like yeah, no, like because all the elements are there, all those characters are there, and now we need to flush it out into a movie. So I don't mind that. Yeah. What, what about the new it? Oh, yeah. The, see, part one and two. Yeah. Are those? Yeah. 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 Okay. Because that, at the end of the day, Stephen King is actually writing for a teenage audience. Yeah. Like, you know, it, it seems kind of funny to say that, but he kind of is writing for that, that audience, because that's when you first find it. I remember being in high school in the library and there was like this section of paperbacks and you would see the church uh, from Pet Cemetery. You'd see the, the skull Christine, you know, the 80s kind of. Uh, 
logo that it had on there, you would see these images and you're like, oh, days before the internet, right? When you thought ghosts and monsters were real. And you're just like, do I dare go back into that that dark corner of the, the high school library where there's these paperback novels that maybe shouldn't even be there? I'm not even sure they should be there, you know, but there was always a supernatural section in the mm-hmm. library somewhere, right? Whether it was the public library or high school library, and you're just like, do I dare? And so because I knew I couldn't take it home, I would sign it out, leave it in my locker, and at lunchtime I'd be like, "Yeah, oh, 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 oh yeah, I'm scared." <laughs> now, we can't mention Stephen King, although it's not a book. Well, it is based off of one of his books, but I, we can't bring up Stephen King without mentioning one of my favorite pieces of crap movies, Maximum Overdrive. You know what? I I. It's enjoyable. It's still a Stephen King uh, novel. Not novel. It's still a Stephen King story. He wrote the screenplay. He directed it. And the beauty of it Against is... Against everyone's but better the, But judgment. the beauty of it is it's got that wonderful ACDC I know. musical score, I know. right? And my friend Mark and I were talking about this. That is ripe for a good remake. You could modernize that right now with all the AI and everything else. And you could really weave a really, really good story out of that. That is true. But anyway, I don't want to talk about yeah. Maximum Overdrive too much because you're you're kind of leading us over here, even though it's Stephen King. I want to get into some facts here. Uh, he has had over like 65 novels written, seven uh, Bachman books, uh, approximately. These have hit the stratosphere. I, the... the um, fact that it came up with was from 2006 in 2006 and here we are like almost a decade later from that like two decades later from that uh 2006 you have at that time over 350 million copies of his works sold tons of awards like if you haven't heard of stephen king I don't know what rock you have been living under. Like, you you are brain dead. The, you think of horror, you think of Stephen King, mm-hmm. even though I almost say his work isn't horror, it's Pulp Fiction. It, it very much lies in that. It yeah. very much lies in that. Because, like, if you look at, like, the Dark Tower series, not horror. It but is, has the horror element. It has the horror, it. but it is a fantasy series. Yeah, like one of my favorite books that hasn't been turned into a movie yet is The Girl Who Loved Tom Gordon. So it's this baseball player that she's a big fan of. And it's all about this little girl that gets lost in the woods in Maine. There's nothing horror that goes on other than the fact that she's lost and she's frightened and so forth and so on. But then at the end, he has this creature. I mean, she's dehydrated. She's, you know, uh, she barely lives, barely survives. And so she sees this image of this monstrous creature, right? And the thing of it is, is like you don't know if that's real or if it's part of her fever dream from being just kind of stuck in the woods all this time, right? And she she drinks water that makes her sick because it's not, you know, it's got contaminants, not mm-hmm. contaminants, but you know, like bear poop and all that kind of stuff. And it's not it's not fresh water. And it's just a I couldn't put it down. And it's it's kind of like a short story, but it's one of his best. And I think for me, ultimately, his best is Pet Cemetery. The, and that came from the fact that when he and Tabitha were first married and they had their kids, they moved to a 
a house just like that. And there was a pet cemetery in the way beyond. And there was a road that just was a, a pet killer, an animal killer. It, it was busy. And their son was heading towards the road. And and that that's kind of the thing is it's a, Stephen King's a great example. And again, but being East Coast, and this is where most of his stories are based, he's a great example of write what you know. Write what you know, mm-hmm. right? Write about who you know. Yeah. All those people that he wrote in there, they're composites of people that he knew. Carrie is a composite of three girls that he knew, you know, and uh, bringing them into it. Like, you see that, the abuse of alcoholism, about people hiding secrets. And and what I love, I was discussing this with Vanessa at Lockwood Books. Mm. Stephen King t- is one of the first writers that I was aware of where he's created a meta-universe long before, like, Marvel Comics or anything like that, right? Where where you are sitting there reading um, Dolores Claiborne and the eclipse happens. And there's a tie-in to Dolores Claiborne and um, Gerald's game, you know, where she's laying on the bed and the eclipse happens and she sees Dolores Claiborne, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's, it's all this kind of interesting thing where everything's happening in Derry or Castle Rock or places like that. And I don't know if he will ever build it into this one finale kind of thing where there's something about dairy or that area that is that has created all of this but his world is so rich that he ta- he's taken it out of maine too when he was briefly living in colorado that's where misery takes place where the shining takes place yeah. you know so and i just cannot imagine a world now in pop culture without stephen king even on the simpsons yeah i mean there's i just cannot imagine a world without him so we have these wonderful horror authors that we talked about they're coming to a an age where we have to pass the torch where is it going to go so i just recently read my best friend's exorcism that book is by Grady Hendrix, uh, who's also written the Final Girl Support Group and the Southern Book Club's Guide to Vampire Slaying, which I just love those titles. But he he wrote it, it's it is a horror comedy book, but where he gets the horror right is in the isolation that Abby feels as the demon starts to take over Gretchen. Because this thing is out for chaos. (laughs) It is out to cause all the problems. And uh, Abby gets caught up in the crossfire of it. And nobody, obviously nobody believes her that her best friend's been taken over by a demon. And it's just wonderful to kind of get that harrowing. Because we've all felt isolated and alone at times. Yeah, And it's an easy, easy emotion to relate to. And being so sure of yourself that you are, that you know you're right and nobody wants to listen to you, it is scary. Mm -hmm. And that's where the fear comes from. Not the demon, Mm -hmm. not the awful things that the demon's doing, but the emotions. And I think for, um, for modern audiences, that's where the real fear is. Because if you look at what we're all digesting as far as media goes the emotions do become scary and i think that is a really good way a good wave for 
modern horror. Yeah. Um, one of the people that I am now uh, following that I enjoy as an author, believe it or not, uh, is, well, nature abhors a vacuum. We know that Stephen King is in his 70s, and his son Joe Hill has really picked up that mantle. <laughs> I don't believe it. I mean, I love I love the fact that Joe Hill's like, I didn't want to be judged based on my father. That's why I go by the name of Joe Hill. And you look at the back cover, it's like, wow, look, just like your dad did in the 1970s, that, beard and all. That boy is a cloning experiment gone horribly <laughs> right. Yes. But he has written some really fascinating uh, novels that yeah. have his dad's influence and flair. You can see that style is there. It's particularly in Nosferatu, yeah. not Nosferatu the the way it's written as vampire, but Nos was before Ratu, um, Horns, which was adapted into a movie. Like he's got his own voice and his own style, but it's got that Stephen King flavor to yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. And he writes in the same kind of style that his dad does. He's very descriptive. The thing that I would say is he's maybe even improved upon that witchcraft because Stephen King was once accused of having diarrhea of the word processor. I find that Joe Hill does not have that. Um, but it's, you know, like, how could you not become a successful author when you have parents who are successful authors? Because the whole King family, Tabitha King is a successful author. Owen King is an author. They have, like, six, it's it's this great thing. And their house has been turned into, uh, their house in Maine, they've turned it into a uh, residency for writers to, new writers to go and, and that's practice their craft. Oh, that's so cool. You know, and I want to see that house so bad. I want to see it. So I just kind of want to end on this one quote from Stephen King, because this is what we've been talking about. We've been talking about Gods and Monsters, great film about that whole uh, situation with James Wales and, and everything. So this, this is a great quote, in my opinion, regarding Gods and Monsters, just tying it all in. That's kind of what we've been talking about. Quote from Stephen King, Monsters are real, and ghosts are real too. They live inside us, and sometimes they win. Life is like a wheel. Sooner or later, it always comes around to where you started again. Hmm. And on that note, aliens, that is all the time we have for this episode of Area 51 and a Half. We want to thank you for joining us on our landing pad. This is Spooky Uncle John and... Snyderman 501 Nick Snyder. And Pyro Lily. Saying happy landings, and we'll see you in two weeks for another episode of Area 51 and a Half.